0: Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of historical fiction for adults and teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I'm so thrilled that my guest today is Patricia Bracewell, historical novelist, author of the Emma of Normandy trilogy, which was Shadow on the Crown, The Price of Blood, and The Steel Beneath the Silk. Her most recent book is The Steel Beneath the Silk, and this is what we're gonna talk about today. Pat, so glad you're here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: As you know, I like to talk about lots of crafty things with books, but I'm going to start slightly differently because I would love you to recount your journey to getting this third volume published. That was a long journey <laughs> that I, that very few people know
1: about. As you know, I was published in hardcover by Penguin for the first two books. And Random House came in and suddenly... My editor was gone and her boss was gone and her boss was gone. And the whole culture at uh, Penguin changed. And when we submitted the draft of the steel beneath the silk, they took a look at it and said, we're sorry, we think early medieval is not selling very well these days. And it's been so long, it's been five years since your last book came out. So we're going to pass on this one, even though it's a very nice book. You did a good job. (laughs) So what do you do when you've got the third book of a trilogy and the publisher of the first two doesn't want it? It puts you in a really bad position. My, My agent switched companies. She's went to another company and I think she probably realized we weren't going to get any major deals. I was without a publisher and without an agent. And I had met Linda Cardillo of Bellastoria Press in 2019 at the Historical Novel Society Conference. And we had spoken and I called her up or actually emailed her and said, I'd like to send you this manuscript. Would you take a look at it? And she took a look at it. Her staff took a look at it and they said, we'd love to publish this book. And of course, they were familiar with it because they'd read the first two. And so, out it came. Finally, it took us better part of a year to do it, but we got it done. And I just kept asking myself all the way through. Of course, I was devastated when it was when Penguin rejected it. And I just kept saying to myself, "What would Emma do? What would Emma do?" And <laughs> <laughs> so yes. that was that was what I thought Emma would do. She would just keep pushing until she could get the book out. Yeah. And so that's the story and why it mm-hmm. took so long.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny because of course I read the first two and you get to the end of the second one and you're like on the edge of your seat waiting for what's going to happen next. I was like, no! (laughs) (laughs) So I was so happy when this all worked out and you were able to get The Steel Beneath Silk published. Tell me about the actual craft challenges of having having such a big gap between the two and how did you make sure that somebody who just picked up The Steel Beneath the Silk might be able to get where they were (laughs) if they hadn't read the first two volumes.
1: Right. When we, you know, the first draft, one of the, I thought it was the final draft, but it wasn't the novel. It leaned a lot on the first two books. And when I had an editor look at it and my agent looked at it, she said, you have to make this a standalone. It has to not be dependent on the first two books, even if it's, you're looking at it as the third book of the trilogy, it still has to, you want, and I realized then, yeah, I, I want people to buy this book, even if they haven't read the first two books. And so the editor took a look at it, and she helped me look at the areas where we might need a little backstory. And just a a sentence or two. And her comment was, if they've read the first two books, it's been a long time. They're gonna love getting reminded of Mm -hmm. some of this. Uh, But I didn't want to go into a lot of a lot of detail. I didn't want to distract from the story going forward. So what I tried to do was when I was telling some backstory, I would try to tell it from a different viewpoint than what we saw in the earlier book whatever scene was taking place in the earlier book. And so now you're getting not just a a bit of a reminder of what happened, but you're getting a reminder from someone else who was there whose head we were not in when that original episode took place. So you're adding to the reader's knowledge of the characters, plus you're moving the story forward. So that's what I tried to do. And in fact, the prologue of the original prologue was three pages long. It was very short. I knew I had to talk about the scene that happened in All Hallows Church. You probably remember that at the end of The Price of Blood. I hadn't resolved what had happened afterwards at mm-hmm. the end of the book, and I needed to resolve it at the beginning of this one. So I retold that whole scene from an omniscient point of view, added stuff at the beginning, added stuff at the end that that wasn't in the first First time we'd seen it in the previous book. And so it became 12 pages long (laughs) instead of three. And I think it really added to the book because it it allowed me to introduce some things about Edward that we hadn't seen before and Thorkel and even Emma's connection with Thorkel make that a little bit stronger than Mm -hmm. when I'd left it.
0: Well, whatever you did, it worked really well. (laughs) (laughs) I I loved all of these books from beginning to end. And they're so... They're just so exciting. Talk about high stakes. Start. Tell what what drew you to this time period and to this story in particular.
1: It was Emma. I bumped into a a reference to her online at some point back in in the last century. And I'd never heard of her. And I thought she's the, the... wife of two kings of England and the mother of two kings of England and the great aunt of William the Conqueror. Why have I not heard of this woman? And so I started to do some research on her. And the more research I did, the more convinced I was that, that she needed a book. And I realized it was going to be, have to be more than one book. And a, a number of readers have complained that I've only covered a little part of Emma's life in this trilogy. And what I set out to do was to write the story that Emma didn't tell, because Emma commissioned a book towards the end of her life called The Encomium Emma Regina. And it starts with Sven's invasion of England in 1013, and then goes forward from there. Ethelred, King of England is not mentioned at all. And Who could blame her? <laughs> we don't really know. We don't know Why? He's not, we do know, we have some ideas about why he wasn't mentioned, but I came up with my own idea of why he wasn't. And so what I wanted to tell was the story of that first marriage of her going to England and what she experienced in the first book. In the second book, her growing comfort with who the people were and her connections that she made. And then the third book, when all hell breaks loose and and that second marriage comes about. And even today, historians don't know actually what happened, because we have five or six stories (laughs) from that time, about how that came about.
0: Whichever one you land on, it's still fascinating. Yeah, I have a question I've been dying to ask you, my little limited English history that I studied, I don't even remember, maybe in high school or something, I never really studied English history, was, is the Ethelred in the book, was he known as Ethelred the Unready? Yes. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. Yeah.
1: So let me tell you about that name. Ethelred means, means noble. Red means council in Old English. So his name meant noble council. And somewhere along the way, some wag in Anglo-Saxon England called him Ethelred Unred, which means no council or bad council. So it was a play on words. It was a diss of the king's name, Ethelred Unred noble council, lousy council. And it got corrupted somewhere along the way in all those centuries to become unready. So he wasn't really unready, although that's what stuck. Even today, historians call him Ethelred the Unready.
0: Oh, well, I'm so relieved to know that. I've I've been wanting to ask, because as I say, my my sort of British medieval history is very thin on the ground, but that was one thing that stuck in my head, you know? Yeah, and King Canute, but spelled C-A-N-U-T rather than, yeah. Because, of course, spelling is very... all over the map. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you was... You, you use bits of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which I think are great ways to start chapters and things. How much information does that actually give you, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle?
1: The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it tells you about battles. It doesn't tell you when they happened or where. It's just vague. It tells you about the which bishop died and was replaced. It will tell you about the passing of kings. It says very little about the women. Emma is mentioned a few times in the Chronicle. She's one of the very few women who are mentioned in the Chronicle during this period. So there are just these enormous gaps. So it will say something like Edmund, Knut's army went to the Isle of Sheppey and Edmund accepted Edric back and that's it. That's And it was the worst thing he'd ever done. And it doesn't tell you why Edmund didn't follow Knut into Sheppi. It doesn't tell you exactly when this happened. It doesn't tell you, uh, there are just all these terrible gaps that are wonderful for a historical novelist to be able to fill in. But sometimes I would just stare at, the, at my copy of the Chronicle and say,
0: then what happened? <laughs> Why did he do that? <laughs> yeah. What was the actual purpose of the Chronicle? It
1: was started by Alfred the Great. And it was meant to chronicle the events that took place in Anglo-Saxon England. And there are actually six chronicles that we have. And what Alfred the Great did was he started one and he sent several copies of it out to the various major abbeys all over England. So one went to York, one went to Christchurch, Cambridge, Christchurch in uh, Canterbury. One stayed at, at Winchester. And I forget where the others were, but... So then that brought everything up from the creation. It started with the creation and came all the way up to Alfred's time. And then it was up to the various monasteries to keep note of what happened in any given year. And sometimes in a year you'll have maybe three sentences. And in another year you'll have two or three pages. And it just depends on where the particular copy is where it's being kept. So we get a little different look from York than we do from Canterbury or from Winchester. And what I was using was someone's compiled all of them together Hmm. and you can look at what you're seeing is what they all viewed um, as happening in that year.
0: Do you read Old English or were you working from a translation?
1: I was working from translations all the time. Mm-hmm. I know a few words here and there, and I tried to sprinkle Old English a little bit in the books, but not too much. I didn't want to really frighten people.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I get it. Totally. <laughs> Aside from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, were there any other sources you were able to consult for this? Well, of
1: course, Emma's, Emma's book, The Encomium, mm-hmm. Emma Regina, because she covers, she starts with then Quest of England. I was able to use some of that. Now, there are chroniclers that were writing in the 12th century, so writing in the 1100s. And these are Norman chroniclers. They're writing in Norman times, but they're in England. So this is after the conquest. And they use the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and other, I don't know, word of mouth, other different chronicles that have been lost. So we have William of Malmesbury's Chronicle. We have John of Worcester's Chronicle. And I use those two. I've used, there was a book book about Emma, written by Pauline Stafford. And she's a, a historian. And she's basically Emma's biographer. And so that was very useful, because she quotes other chroniclers in Germany. And we look at some of the sagas, there's information in some of the sagas that touch on what happened at this time with my Thorkel is in the sagas and Knut. And of course, that comes much later, because that's coming out of Iceland in the 14th century. William of Jumiege in Normandy was writing about, and he again, he's in the 12th century, is writing later, but he covers a little bit of what happened. So those are some of the, the, the resources that I use, all in translation.
0: Yeah. So did you set out to be a historical novelist, or did this story, did you you stumble on it and say, I just have to tell this particular story? How did that come about? I had written two
1: romance novels, and they never went anywhere, and they're still in manuscript form up on a shelf in my closet, which is where they belong. But I spent a lot of years as a member of Romance Writers of America, and I went to a lot of workshops through them, and in writing those novels, I learned a lot about uh, no point of view and how to how to create a scene, how to put a book to a novel together. that that I, those were my training novels essentially. Mm-hmm. But after I'd finished the second one, I thought, you know, I want to write something that has a little bit more grit to it. And I've read historical novels all my life ever since I was in high school. And so I started looking around. my antenna were up, and that's when I bumped into Emma and decided to write her story. I thought, this is it. This is the story I want to tell.
0: Yeah, it is it is obviously her story. But going back to this whole point of view thing, you have a lot of point of view characters. I do. And of those point of view characters, I know, I think you say in the beginning, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, I had them on Kindle, which is always hard to go yeah. back and flip back to wherever, and audiobook for the first one. Of those point of view characters, were any completely invented or were there or were they all historical characters that you knew more or less? About?
1: There were very few invented characters and they were all minor characters. Mm-hmm. So in the first two books, Emma, Ethelred, Athelstan, who is the king's eldest son, and Algyva were the four viewpoint characters. And they were all real people. And they were the viewpoint characters in the second book. As well and then in the third book I added Edmund Ironside who would become King of England and Knut because I wanted to get inside their heads before we'd seen them only through someone else's eyes I needed to get inside their heads for the third book so they are they are viewpoint characters and they're all historical figures
0: how how was it the difference between being because that's something I always think of, Being inside a woman's head as opposed to a man's head, what sort of psychic adjustments do you make for that?
1: I try to become my sons.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have two strapping sons. And so I might get my
1: head back into their way of looking at the world or trying to. And I think the hardest was Ethelred because... He is so dour uh, a character, and gruff and harsh. And I remember I would go down into the kitchen after I'd been writing about Ethelred and say to my husband, "Don't talk to me. I'm in Ethelred's brain right now. <laughs> I don't even say anything." Because I would just get in a bad mood whenever I had to be Ethelred. <laughs> and I loved writing Elgiva. She's my bad girl, and oh, I loved she was such a good bad
0: girl. She was a good <laughs> bad girl, absolutely. But and and then. What I love though is that you, even though Ethelred was just not a he was a piece of work, he his his visions or his haunting, the ghost that haunted him, where did that come from and how did you decide to incorporate that?
1: One of the things that William of Malmesbury writes in his chronicle is that Ethelred was haunted by the shade of his brother demanding terribly the price of blood. Okay.
0: Yeah, okay. That said, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duh.
1: Duh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I immediately thought, okay, this gives me license to have a ghost. And the ghost, for me, uh, I thought I had him very lightly in the very first iteration of the first manuscript of Shadow on the Crown. And my agent came back and said, we want more ghosts, please. And so I added more. I thought people are going to get sick of this ghost. but mm-hmm. And I had to make his appearance different every single time over three books. Mm-hmm. So different things happen. I You don't want to repeat yourself. Although there's always this sense of coldness that comes over him. And in my own mind, there was something physically wrong with Ethelred when the ghost whenever the Mm -hmm. ghost appeared. And someone said to me, is there really a ghost or is it guilt? And my answer to that was, in my mind, it's both. The ghost is there because of the guilt of Ethelred, because he took his brother's throne after his brother was murdered. So I I got pretty comfortable with the ghost, although he appears much less in the third book than he does in in the first two.
0: You get the sense in the third book that Ethelred is really declining in ability and health and all that kind of stuff and stepping back from being very active and and reigning. And so somehow that was logical to me that this whole ghost thing would also separate from him a little bit. It's so interesting you say that uh, about him being there, possibly something physically wrong with him in your mind, but possibly almost even in his. I was been doing some research for a nonfiction YA book that I'm pitching at the moment about women composers. And I was looking into uh, starting with Hildegard of Bingen. You
1: know, mm-hmm. And she
0: is known for having had visions ever since she was three years old. And there's a modern, modern scholars believe that possibly she, what she had was migraines. And that the migraines, because of the way she describes the effects, the visual effects are very much the way migraines can manifest. So I thought that was fascinating. So I wonder how many mystics or how many people who saw things like ghosts were actually going through some physiological manifestation of, of a change in their bodies. So that's interesting. There's
1: a book that I read and I'd have to run over to grab the grab it to see the, the author uh, called Hallucinations. And it's written by a doctor. And he talks about hallucinations and the physical interaction between having hallucinations and what's going on. And and so that's where I got the idea of of him being sick, Bethel, having something wrong with him. That's why this was happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Gaiva, who I, I also really loved. And I think what I was really impressed with is you do a good job of making her kind of despicable, but likable at the same time. How did you think about her as a character? And how did you use her? I mean, she's just such a nice little thread running through all three books. We know
1: very little about Gaiva. We know that and actually her, or she would have been known as Algyva of Northampton. That's her Old English moniker and I changed it to Gaiva, which is a more modern rendition of. And I chose that name because it sounds like Godiva, and I would always tell people. It, it's like Godiva. And the idea being that there would be this mental equation with Lady Godiva, with Godiva chocolates and <laughs> Algaiva. So you have these different, that, that I wanted to ha- have subliminally happen in, in the reader's mind. Whether it does or not, I don't know, but it certainly happened in mine. Anyway, we don't know much about her. We know that Knut married her at some point and that they had two sons and they may have had a daughter and that's it. And, and she comes into the story historically much, much, much later back in, in, in 1034 1035. So knowing this, knowing that and at in, in 1035, she's promoting her son for king after Canute dies, and Emma is promoting her son for king after Canute dies. And mm-hmm. so they were in conflict in 1035. I wanted them to be in conflict in my story right at the beginning. So I brought El in right at the start. Mm-hmm. That she is in Shadow on the Crown, that she is a seductress and that she has having a fang with Ethelred at the same time that he's just married Emma. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me sort of, you know, at one point I have to think of Algyva as a coin that you flip and, and always ends up bright side down and dark side up. Mm-hmm. And in in a way, I thought of Emma and Algyva as two sides of the same coin, they were both powerful women. They were both determined. They were both ambitious for their children. And one was dark and one was light. Mm-hmm. And so I used her in that way all the way through. But I knew that her relationship with Knut was going to have to go to heck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, And I wanted that to be her. I didn't want them to actually be in love. I wanted them to be, yeah, connected sexually and as part of an alliance, but I didn't want that to be the main uh, love of Knut's life. I wanted mm. it to be Emma. Yeah. I threw another guy in there that Elgiva is having a relationship with. So that was happening mostly in the, the second book.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's so satisfying in the third book when they then Emma and Knut finally get together, <laughs> even though of course it's kind of forced on Emma really, isn't it? It's, which is- yes. And there was a lot of that, of course, women were pawns in the power struggles as they were all through European history. The other thing, though, is the awful things people did and the violence and everything. How was it? How did you manage writing about that, about the battles and the murders and (laughs) things like that.
1: The battles were tough, because I'm not a, I don't have a background in that. And I just tried to be logical about it. What would they do? What would they feel? What might this happen? And, you know, I'm reading a book now that's set in a much later time, and it's battle, 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 battle. And Mm -hmm. it's much more visually gruesome than anything Mm -hmm. that I write. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of the things I think about my books is that if you compare them to what probably actually happened, they're pretty tame. I think it was probably a lot worse. I have a pathologist neighbor and I would talk to him about wounds and about illnesses that might've happened in that time. And of course, doing some research into that because a lot of people have studied that, the impact of an arrow on going through armor and into a body chainmail and into a body so it's just a matter of bearing down and and saying this has to happen so how am i going to make it happen
0: yeah and i understand that because of course in my 12th century thing with the crusades and the people being burned at the stake you, you just go there because you have to and then I remember somebody reading a scene that wasn't even that bad that I didn't think was even that bad and responding and saying, Oh, that was really hard to read. I could, you know, but it was, and yeah, I think there is this slight disconnect. We have to be a little bit outside of, of the violence and everything. Just get on with it.
1: And I didn't want to focus on that because my story is the women's story. I really wanted to focus on what was happening to the women, which no one writes about in the, Mm -hmm. in the histories Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're left out.
0: Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Isn't (laughs) that how? Yeah. And that is, I think, one of the big things that has spurred so much historical fiction is trying to resurrect characters or call attention to people who were probably a very important part of history, but not recorded, not taught in the schools, as it were. So did you, were you a historian yourself? What is your background? My background is,
1: I was an English major. I have a master's degree in English and I was a high school English teacher, but I liked English history. I took a class in English history when I was in college and even as a teacher i there were certain times when we would be reading shakespeare or something and i would go through the history probably bore my students to death st- trying to get them to understand all the different kings and the relationships between one king and another and why this guy was doing that and then when i was when i was working on the book i took a class at this was wonderful i went to cambridge university in england mm-hmm. and did a two week course on titled kings queens and vikings which was from the time of Alfred the Great to Edward the Confessor, which is exactly what I needed. Mm. And that was really a dream come true for me to do that. It was, it was yeah. fascinating.
0: Yeah, very- I would love to be able to just go and take a bunch of courses <laughs> on all sorts of different things. <laughs> exactly. But, but So is there anything I haven't asked you about your <laughs> trilogy, about this book that you want to bring up or discuss? I can't think of anything. You've been pretty... Uh,
1: You've covered everything pretty well. Especially, it's important that that readers understand that they can jump into this book, and not feel they have to read the first two. But
0: once they've read this book, they'll want to go back and read the first two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's about it. Well. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I will put in all the sort of links and things like that so people can go rush off and buy the book. Oh, there's a, Is there an audio book? Is there going to be one? It's out there already. There's an audio oh, okay. book it's available. Excellent. And
1: Rachel Atkins, who mm-hmm. recorded it in England, did a wonderful job. Wonderful job. She's really good.
0: Excellent. Excellent. I've read the book, but I also sometimes get books on audio just to listen to them when they're good performances. Yeah. So
1: I do that too. Yeah.
0: So just last thing is something else coming along. Are you writing another book? Are you going to.
1: I haven't made any decisions about that yet. I've been trying, you know, I've been trying to decide if I want to write another book about Emma because I keep getting people saying, what about the, what happens next? Yeah. Yeah. What about the rest (laughs) of the story? And there's not a lot of conflict in the rest of the story, I don't think, until we get to the end of her second marriage. So I have to think about that and how I want to do that. But I do have ideas about a lot of what went on in those years following her second marriage. So we'll see. I don't know.
0: Well, if you do, I'm sure I will grab it and read it (laughs) as best (laughs) as I can. It may take
1: another six years. We'll
0: see. Oh, and, and I think that's something people don't understand. People who write romance or genre fiction or whatever they can if they're setting it in a place where they either it's a place they go back to a lot so they know the setting and whatever or it's in the present it doesn't carry the weight of the research you have to do it's hard to write a good historical novel even in a year <laughs> you know there are people yeah. who do it it's hard so yeah so we just have to be patient <laughs> exactly <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I will let you know when this is live and we can all share it all over the place.
1: Thank you so much, Suzanne. It's just been really great talking to you.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.